Uh, we're going to be uh, looking in Romans chapter 15 at a text, but before we actually get to that particular text, but if you may want to uh, turn over to Romans 15, just uh, step back with me for a moment so that we can kind of put this in some context. We're looking, of course, at I believe the Apostle Paul's theological masterpiece, the book of Romans, you could spend a lifetime studying it and never plumb the depths of it. And basically, in a very profound way, he does something that seems pretty simple. He's expounding to us, what does it mean to walk by faith as God's justified ones? We know the key verse to the book of Romans is found in Romans chapter 1, 17, which says, the just ones, the justified ones, shall what? Shall live by faith. That sounds so simple, and yet it's deeply profound. In fact, this particular verse the just shall live by faith, was the great cry of the Reformation. It's It transformed and, if you will, recovered the gospel to the church that had largely been uh, steeped in, in superstitions and man-made traditions. And it was this core biblical theology that reshaped our faith. And for that, we're so grateful. And so uh, Paul is very... Uh, capable to communicate to us some of the great theological truths of the gospel. And he does that all through the book of Romans, very uh, systematically walking us through the implications of what does it mean to be a justified one, a just one who lives by faith. And then he starts now at the end of book of, of Romans, and this is where we'll be looking today, to take those great truths and bring them to bear on what it does it mean practically. How do we live out this faith? He talks in Romans 13 about what is our relationship to government. And then he starts going, you know, creating circles, if you will, of how do we relate outside of the church? How do we relate in the church? And that's much of what we're going to be thinking about today. And um, <clears throat> if you will look at verse 13, which kind of sets up our passage today, after uh, talking about not getting so sidetracked in secondary things and nitpicky Christianity and getting up into everybody's diet. You know, the kingdom of God is not a matter of food and drink, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And and being able to focus on what's really important, he concludes in verse 13, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in the hope by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is our kind of setting up for what he's going, we're going to look at today. So in the larger context, Paul is imagining us as those who are following Christ, who came as the servant, the came, who came to serve, who came to offer his life a ransom. And, and, and it's, if you will, Jesus is the divine deacon. He's the suffering servant. He's the one who's come in humility. And, and now he's turning to us and saying, now you are his people and you are empowered by the Holy Spirit with great hope, with great peace, with great joy. And now we're going to talk about how it is that we live out this hopeful faith in service to one another. And he does so with some rather startling language for Calvinists. Uh, I find this verse uh, kind of interesting. He begins in verse 14, and he says, basically, you are competent. You are competent to edify each other. He says, now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also, look at this, are full of goodness, 
filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. Now, for some streams of Christianity, that's, that's good. That doesn't present a problem. But for those of us who are very acutely Calvinistic in our worldview, what does this mean? I mean, I thought just a few chapters ago, Paul was saying, none of us are righteous, not even one. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, uh, to use our, our theological terms. I thought, as Calvinists, we believe that people are totally depraved. Well, we do believe that. We've seen the dark, murky corners of human sinfulness, and we know our own. Paul also took us through the great lofty peaks of God's grace and law in the earlier chapters and wrestled with these ideas of predestination and election. But now he's applying this gospel, this hope, this peace, this joy that we have in Christ to how we can encourage each other. And he reminds us that we have this ability. Now, it's by God's grace that we can do this alone. Uh, what does it mean to be able to admonish one another? Um, it's kind of the imagery of, of uh, setting something straight. When I think of that, I see someone with a broken bone, you know, and, and you come by and you set it, you get it fixed. It's, it's the ability to impart understanding. It's, and it has in, in its implications, we have the ability to influence each other's hearts, to put something on someone's heart. The stress is on our ability then to edify one another. Now, hat tip to Jay Adams. Many of you remember Jay Adams. He taught at Westminster Seminary. He wrote a a very ground-shaking book called Competent to what? Competent to Counsel. What? Based upon this text. Jay Adams, and I believe under uh, the submission to the Word of God, believes and wrote a whole book and started a whole movement of biblical counseling based upon this premise that we believe in the sufficiency of the Scriptures to give us everything we need for life and godliness. How many of you believe that? And so we have the ability then in submission to the Word of God, to be able to admonish one another, to encourage each other, to straighten one another out. I love what Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the what? Okay. So the opposite of that is true then. If you're blessed if you don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, you are blessed if you you do walk in, in the counsel of the godly. So we forsake the ungodly counsel of the world and we embrace the biblical counsel of the godly. Now, yes, we do believe in historically Christianity and particularly the Calvinistic stream has said that, yeah, man is sinful. He is fallen and and there is a sin problem. And that's when we're preaching the gospel, we want to bring that to the forefront one of the greatest preachers of the gospel was a guy named George Whitfield. He had some very unflattering things to say about us. He said, man by nature is half devil and half beast. Ooh, what about my precious little self-esteem? Well, guess what? And it's true. Half devil in what respect? 
half devil in that we have satanic rebellious impulses just like the devil himself and sometimes we submit to those and we're beastly what does that mean we're just like animals sometimes we're just living after our base appetites and there's there's some truth to that as well but i also want to temper that while that is all true there's some other things that are true about us as well no matter how big a sinner you are you still bear god's image and uh, I think it was Rabbi Zacharias who, who made the turn of phrase, but I, I heard him saying about that. And it's true. All at the same time, all at once, we are both the glorious image bearers of God and we're fallen, depraved sinners. And both of those are true of us at the same time. Sometimes we emphasize one to the exclusion of the other, but we want to be biblical and we affirm both. Yes, and with that image, it is glorious. We do bear God's image. And and in that sense, all people then bear some worth and dignity as the image bearers of God. But that image is profoundly marred and distorted. So that's why the gospel comes. So God, then, seeing us, this big bundle of glorious contradictions, comes by the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what does he do? He begins this glorious reclamation process whereby he intervenes, he regenerates us. And now, what is the process of sanctification? The Apostle Paul speaks of it in these terms, that we are now being conformed more and more day by day to the image of his son. The image is being restored. And if you are in Christ, that's happening to you. You have been regenerated, and now God is shaping and forming and and conforming you to the image of his own dear son. I remember what that does. It's as if a lamp gets turned on inside of you, if you will. Something changes inside of your heart. And I've told this before, but I, if, and I hope you've had that experience where when you were somehow awakened spiritually, the world looked different to you. I was 20 years old and I was born and raised in, don't be shocked, Las Vegas, Nevada. And I know what you're thinking. Can anything good come out of Las Vegas, right? <laughs> I know what you're thinking. Uh, I guess that the verdict is out on that at this point. But I was raised there, and not only was I um, raised in Las Vegas, I was a musician. I, in fact, I went to the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, on a music scholarship. I was presumed I loved jazz. I played in the jazz band. I played in the marching band. I, all of all of that stuff, and um, living a really profligate, sinful, self-indulgent. All the things that you would associate with that type of lifestyle, that was me. I was a cliche. And then God in his severe mercy (laughs) saved me. And I tell people, see the scar on my chin right here? This is the mark from the car crash when I was 20 years old that should have killed me. That I have to see every day to be reminded because I'm not that smart. I'm not the sharpest knife in the in the barn. Um, That I'm alive by the grace of God. Every day is a gift. 
and he spared me. But I remember God used that to draw me to myself. And I did something that I typically did. This was in the summer when I was 20 years old. And every summer in Las Vegas, they had a thing called the J.C. State Fair. And I remember going to that. And now in previous uh, years, the whole goal of going to the J.C. State Fair was to see how much beer I could drink, right? And how much uh, trouble I could get in. Because I thought that was fun. But then I went there after having that encounter with Christ, and it's, it, it was, I can remember it as if it was yesterday. It was, I saw the world differently. I saw the people stumbling around drunk and, and acting like fools that I thought used to be cool. I saw it for how pathetic it really is. And how evil it was. And how bad it was. That had never occurred to me until I had that encounter with Christ. See, something happened to you when you came to Christ. Something in your heart changed and is changing as God conforms you to his image. And so, the world then, by contrast, has no goodness. See, that goodness that you have is the goodness that God gives to you by His grace and has made alive in you by His Spirit. But where does the world go for goodness? It's sad. Uh, You'll see this in our culture. Everybody's concerned with bullying. And so for years, there's been these anti-bullying campaigns. Has anything gotten better? No. It hasn't. If anything, it's gotten worse. And why? Because... We don't need more education. We don't need more rules telling us what not to do. We need the power to be the people that we need to be. And and you can only get that by the power of the Holy Spirit through the regenerative work of Jesus Christ, right? But the world hates that message. So they want they want us to live like Christians. We want us they want us to be good boys and girls and get along. But they want to deny the only source of power that can give us the the grace and the ability to do it. So what do they come up with? More and more politically correct, coercive, tyrannical rules and rules and rules. And it's not going to change our heart. We don't need more education. We need a renewed heart. C.S. Lewis in The Abolition of Man, you know this famous quote. He says this, We make men without chests and expect from them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. You see, when when you abandon Christ and you abandon the notion that we are created in God's image and that we need our hearts to be renewed, then there's no framework for goodness. Goodness becomes tyranny. People using power to assert their authority over you. And and there's no standard of goodness, is there? If you ask the average non-believer, well, where do we get our standards then for right and wrong? If you abandon God, you abandon the gospel. Where's our standards? Well, goodness is what society says. Well, I don't know if you've read much history or if you were even alert during the last century. What happened in the last century when societies got down to defining right and wrong? Remember the Nuremberg trials, the war crime trials of the Nazis? 
We put the Nazis on trial, tried, convicted, and hung some of them. Why? Because they abandoned the Ten Commandments. But what was their defense? We were just following orders. Our society had determined that murdering Jews was virtuous. So how can you, and that was their defense, how can you stand and judge us because we were just following our societal norms? But we did, because you can't live in that world. And so we judged and adjudicated, convicted, and executed some of them based upon the fact that they should have known better and they had an obligation to not obey those orders. So the fool, the Bible says, says in his heart, there is no God. Why? They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. So that's the truth of the human nature. But you, having been born again, according to the Apostle Paul, you are filled with goodness. Not your own goodness, obviously. It's the goodness that comes to you by the grace of God, through the gospel, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. The next thing the the Apostle Paul says about you is that you're able to encourage each other and admonish each other because you're full of knowledge. By God's grace, our minds have been redeemed as well. By nature, the Bible says, the the mind of man by nature is at enmity, or if you will, at war with God. So how does that change? How did we go from a mind that's at war with God to a, a mind that's full of godly understanding? Well, it's by the grace of God, because God renews not only our souls, but our minds. Kevin DeYoung uh, was uh, quoting, uh, there's a great quote by um, Calvin about knowledge, that true knowledge comes from knowing who God is and knowing who you are. That's the basis of true knowledge. Kevin DeYoung kind of expands on that and says this, Know God, know yourself, and how? Know yourself to know your need of God, and know God to know that you are not gods. It's very important that we come to this truth of who God is, and and we get that grace, or, or that truth by grace. Did you figure it out all on your own? No. By nature, we wouldn't have. We've been resisting the mind of God. But what is it our, our duty now as Christians? We are to take every thought captive and obedient to Jesus Christ. I love this phrase. We are to think God's thoughts after Him. That's why the Apostle Paul commands in Romans 12, Be ye transformed. It's a command. Be ye transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. How do we do that? By conforming our mind to what he has revealed in his word. So could it be said of you, are you growing in, in the knowledge of the Lord? Are you growing? Are you delighting to meditate in his law day and night? Do you feast on his word, his spiritual manna? Is that what sustains your life? You're never too old as a Christian to grow in the word of God. This is our final authority and the source, if you will, of our mutual edification. Now, by contrast, the world has no knowledge. What do I mean by that? They have facts. 
They can learn certain things. Well, even the fallen mind of man is not completely worthless. It's just worthless spiritually in that respect. But true knowledge, true knowledge is the ability to know what's really going on, to be able to connect the facts, to know what things mean. But when you're at war with God, you cannot make sense of this world. And it's only because of God's grace in your life when you came to faith that reality started to make sense, that this world adds up. It's kind of ironic. Richard Dawkins died just a few months ago. You remember that? Great scientist. What is Richard Dawkins most famous about? You know, he was one of the great atheists, the new atheists, and and their whole worldview says, all you are, really, when we boil this down, is an accidental bundle of carbon stardust, and you are, you know, basically going through this universe, you know, with no meaning, no purpose, and... Therefore, you know, that's reality, folks. And if you don't like it, lump it, but that's that's what you have. Well, that's what you have when, when you have a godless mindset. You have an absolutely worthless, meaningless life. But you know what? Nobody, even though they say that, they can't live it out. Because what happened when Richard Dawkins died? They wanted to have a funeral. Well, wait a second. If my life doesn't mean anything... If it's completely insignificant, why is it that you want to stop and memorialize my life? And they even wanted him to be buried in a Christian church. Why? Because you can't live out that worldview. Because it doesn't comport with reality. And everybody who says that's what they believe are a bunch of hypocrites because they don't live that way. You cannot live in God's world as if there is no truth and no understanding. They are simply suppressing the truth and unrighteousness with blind, godless prejudice. The Bible says they are without excuse. So the world has no basis for counseling. Why? Because they have no goodness. They have no source of knowledge. That's why Paul would say, although they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful for him, but they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. So, dear Christian, where are you going to go for your counseling? Isn't it frustrating that a lot of Christians are getting their advice from Oprah Winfrey or Dr. Phil? And there's even a guy now, Jordan Peterson. Oh, he's supposedly the new uh, pop psychologist guy that's supposed to be really good. But at the end of the day, they're godless. They don't, they don't submit to Christ. They don't submit to his word. And yet the church many times gets enamored with these kind of pop psychological uh, personalities and theories. Thank God, you have the Holy Spirit. You have the Word of God. You have the Gospel of God in you. And you have the ability by the Holy Spirit to edify and strengthen and encourage one another. You are competent by God's grace. But not only are you competent then to administer and admonish and, and help one another, you're competent to evangelize. Look at verse 15. Nevertheless, brethren, I've written this more boldly to you on some points as reminding you, because of the grace of God given me by God, by the grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, 
I love this phrase, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. It's kind of an interesting little passage there. And this is actually the one I wanted to preach on. So the first part, that doesn't count. Now I'm going to start preaching. Okay, that was warm-up. Okay. God gives us all certain capabilities, capacities, gifts, and callings. And, of course, the Apostle Paul was an apostle. He had apostolic gifts. He could go into a, a, a community that had no church and by the graces of, that God had given him, be able to establish and, and bring a church into life by preaching the gospel, raising up elders. And by the way, congratulations on getting to the point where you're going to be a particularized church, where you have the 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 identity of Christ and his people uh, on your own apart from uh, other churches, and that's great. And the Apostle Paul did that all over uh, Asia and Asia Minor. And so he had unique gifts, and and and... Even though it's kind of ironic, he would effectively have been an aristocratic Jew, greatly educated, right from the right family and everything else. God (laughs) sent him to the Gentiles, which is great. And although other apostles had ministries to the Gentiles, God uniquely used the Apostle Paul. And so Paul kind of affirms that, that, you know, this is a ministry that God had given him and and the way that he describes that ministry, though, is in priestly terms. Notice what he says, that what? That the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So he's invoking this Old Testament imagery of, of priestly ministry. Now, I say that to you because when I talk to Christians about doing evangelism, oh, I don't want to do evangelism, <laughs> right? I don't want to be one of those preachy Christians. You know, that that's just not my style. Okay, well then, let's be priests. That's how Paul saw it. Look at this. Now, what do we know about priests? Priests were responsible for bringing the offerings to God, to, to worship God. And of course, it had to be according to God's prescribed standards, and they're pretty strict. You had to be, you have just the right kind of sacrifice, you had to offer it in just the right place, on just the right day. Not only that, you had to be just the right person, you had to come from the right family, you had to be the right age, there was even physical requirements, you had to have certain kinds of uh, physical abilities, and you had to be clothed in all of the proper ways in order to offer up worship to God. And of course, we know as New Testament Christians, all that was pointing to Jesus. And Jesus came and he fulfilled. He was the sacrifice. He was the true and faithful high priest. And he was, if you will, the embodiment of the temple. The fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him. So Jesus came in all of his glory, and fulfilled the sacrifices, the priesthood, and the temple. But now, Christ imparts that to you. Why? Because if you are a Christian, you're part of a royal priesthood. If you are a Christian, you are a living sacrifice, right? Romans chapter 12, we are to present ourselves as living sacrifices to God. And if you are a Christian, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So all that was prefigured in the Old Testament and fulfilled in Christ is now true in us because we are in Jesus Christ. So knowing that then, 
when we think about evangelism and we think about the conversion of the Gentiles, Paul saw that ministry as being a priest. That's all he was doing. He was being a priest. So I saw this question posted on Facebook. It's what kind of precipitated this sermon. What's more important, evangelism or worship? Hmm. I think that's a trick question. <laughs> okay? I don't think there's a good answer to that. Because I don't think it's, I don't think there, it's a false dilemma. There is, one isn't better than the other because, in a sense, they're the same thing. Why? Because evangelism is worship. And when worship is done well, and someone comes in from the outside, guess what it is? It's evangelism. Because you're declaring the glories of God. And that brings the presence of the Holy Spirit. I think Paul had in the back of his mind as he's speaking of his ministry, one of the prophetic words that came out of Isaiah chapter 66 verse 20, speaking of the work of evangelism where it says, and they shall bring all of your brethren out of all the nations, how? For an offering to the Lord. Kind of an interesting picture. When we do evangelism, we're actually, when people come to faith, it's as if we're bringing an offering to the Lord. That should be the motivation. Why do we do evangelism? It's so that we can get scalps and put notches on our Bible and think how what great soul winners we are? No. It's so that we might bring glory to God. That He might receive the glory, and the worship. That's, I believe, the highest motivation for evangelism. And I believe every Christian in their heart of hearts wants to do that. It's just sometimes the way that we've, we've engaged evangelism or we think about evangelism, we don't think of it in those terms. Now, of course, you know, we gotta take everything into account. We don't offer up, you know, atoning sacrifices. That's been done once for all through Christ. Um, but, our priestly act of evangelism is really, in, in many respects, just declaring the glory of God. How many of you are grateful for what God has done in your life? How many of you can get to describe what God has done in your life? That's not hard. That's evangelism. All, all you got to do is go tell some, hey, can I tell you what the Lord did for me? Let me tell you where I was where, when Christ found me and what he did. And he changed my life and he transformed me, forgave me of my sins. And now he's filled me with his Holy Spirit and he's given me mis- a, a mission. He's given me purpose. He's given me hope. He's given me joy. That's all evangelism is. You don't have to learn a formula. You don't have to get, be the preachy guy, although I like preaching. And occasionally we go down to the pier in Oceanside and we preach and that's great. But we go to declare the glory of God. Can you do that? I believe you can because you have the Holy Spirit within you. So let me encourage you by asking you, who are you seeking to minister to? If all you have to do is tell them what the Lord did for you, that's not too hard, is it? And there's people in your world and it's surprising because I think we, we're in the church so much that we don't understand this. Uh, but I just heard yesterday at Presbytery, 
one of the young men that are that's coming under Carrie, he said something very interesting. He's he's raised up in Northern California. I know that's kind of a sketchy area anyway. But he was raised his whole life, but he made this comment. He didn't hear anything about Christianity growing up. It wasn't in his home. Apparently it wasn't in his culture. And I think sometimes we think, well, everybody knows what I know. Everybody knows the gospel. Everybody knows the hope and the promise that's been extended to them in Christ. We can't take that for granted. Maybe a hundred years ago in America we could. I don't know. But there's a lot of evangelism that can be done in your circle. And we can't assume that everybody gets it. And so I just want to encourage you. You have competency to admonish each other and counsel and affirm each other. But you also have the competency to offer up a sacrifice to the Lord by bringing people to faith, and all you really need to do is to declare His glory. Just be a priest. Just glorify and worship the Lord. Let me, I'll, I have a lot of stories, so forgive me, but let me tell you one. If you really want to be effective in, in your evangelism, one of the most effective ways is prayer. And I find it's very easy to ask people. I've never had anybody get angry at me because I ask, hey, how are things going? Would you mind if I pray for you? And, you know, and most people see it as the genuine gesture it is. But what you do, you don't wait till you get home to pray for them. You say, great, let's pray. Bam. Guess what? The Holy Spirit shows up. And many times these people are now being confronted with the, the reality <laughs> of the living God, because you're not going to just go home and pray for them in private. And I found even in evangelism, when I'm ministering to people, invoking God's presence. That's a priestly act, right? To just simply pray. Um, I'll tell you one other story. Um, before I was... Uh, when I, I got saved when I was 20. By the time I was 22, I was out on the road with a Christian group doing music evangelism. And it's a fascinating thing. So, and this is pretty edgy at that time. This is like 1980. Contemporary Christian music had been, was kind of a controversy at that time. And I'm a sax player, so it's hard to play sax in church with the traditional approach. So we had this, uh, band and we went around touring and I was, you know, we had a horn section. That's where I met my wife. She was one of the singers. We had four singers and we had a rhythm section. We were downtown in uh, Vancouver in, in Canada, and we were doing street evangelism. And it was a Friday night, so everybody's out. It's kind of rowdy. We were in the kind of a plaza in front of a bank. that You had stairs coming down, and we were there on the bottom, and then people would sit on the stairs, and we, would, we cranked up the band. We got our PA going. Of course, the music's going, and people are coming. And then pretty soon we realize, the audience realizes, wait a minute, you guys are Christians. And they started getting hostile. They started, you know, because we were doing, you know, some of the contemporary Christian music, uh, Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music, all of, all of those classic uh, Keith Green and stuff like that. And they realized, wait a minute, this is, and they started heckling us and shouting us down. And you know what we did? We stopped. We didn't know what to do. We stopped, and then we started singing a hymn, a worshipful 
song directed to God, guess what happened? It shut them down. Because I wasn't just talking to them about God. I was talking to God about them. And we started worshiping the Lord. And the presence of the Holy Spirit came into that situation. That's a priestly act. You can do that. You can do that. I don't suggest you go out and sing, you know, when you're doing evangelism necessarily, but praying definitely will do that. You can do that. If God is in you by the Holy Spirit, He'll give you the boldness. I'll wrap this up. I'm sorry, I'm going way too long. And then the bottom line is all of our competency is from Christ, and you know that. Verses 17 through 21. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus, in the things which pertain to God. For I will, I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and all around to Arisium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest any I should build on any other man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom he has not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand." So the whole boast of the Christian life is in what Christ has done. Now, Paul had a lot to boast about, didn't he? I mean, he went places, he paid a price, he suffered in ways that, that none of us have ever had to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Imprisonment, shipwrecks, floggings, all of the things that he endured. But he did that by the grace of God, and he said, the, the only reason I glory is because I glory in Jesus Christ and those things which he has enabled us him to do. And by the way, would you do anything for God if it weren't for the grace of God in Christ? No, we were lost in the world. And now, if anything good happens, do we get to pat ourselves on the back that, wow, isn't God lucky to have us? No. No. He gets the glory. Now, to some people, this is kind of boasting. It's a little bit offensive. But I think the Apostle Paul is very healthy in this respect. I think there is an appropriate place to boast in Christ, as long as you're boasting in Him. And if God is working through you, great. I mean, give God the glory. False humility, false modesty is just that. It's false. And and Paul is quick to acknowledge, yes, signs and wonders, miracles were done through the apostles' hands, but it was all to the glory of Christ. So there's no reason to be falsely modest. As they say, if it's true, it's not bragging, right? Right? I'm just telling the truth. And the truth is, any goodness, any knowledge, any competency that we have is purely by the grace of God given to us in Christ. In fact, it's interesting, Paul even quotes a Bible verse to say, I'm fulfilling a biblical prophecy. He quotes from Isaiah 20, uh, 52, 15, he says, To whom he was not announced, they shall see. And those who have not heard shall understand. Paul saw himself as the fulfillment of God's plan in the earth. 
Let me ask you, do you see yourself in those ways? Because you are. All of you have a unique place in God's redemptive plan. And God has included us in it to His glory. And when you think about that, how humbling that is. God has a plan for you and me to be able to bring the gospel to this world. For how long? Until the whole earth is filled with His glory. And God uses us to participate in that great plan. So what does that do? That gives us confidence today. And that's what I wanted, I hope, to impart to you. You are competent. It's in Christ. But if you're in Christ, that makes you competent. You have goodness. You have something you can do. You can help set people straight and and admonish them in the right way. You can be a priest and bring offerings to God through evangelism by lifting up God. Just declaring what God has done for you in the in the circle of influence that God has put you in. Your children, your grandchildren need to hear the story of what God has done to you. One generation, the Bible says, will proclaim it to the next. We need to tell our kids what God has done. Our grandkids need to hear our stories. And with that competency comes confidence. The confidence that God is with us in this great enterprise of advancing His kingdom and His righteousness. And so because we know that Jesus has won, because we know the victory is certain, because we know there's going to be an innumerable host of God's people in heaven, our job is just to run up the score on the devil, right? We already won. Now we want to humiliate him, right? And let's go out and win souls. Let's proclaim the gospel and do it with great confidence, knowing that Christ has made you a competent minister of his grace. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you that you didn't put all this on our shoulders and say, now it's all up to you. Go make it happen. Lord, you have given us everything we need. You've given us your son. You've given us the forgiveness of sin. You've given us the power of the Holy Spirit. You've given us the message. We don't have to create anything. You've given us competency and goodness and understanding. And Lord, everything we need to be fruitful for you. So Lord, I pray that you would stir us up this week. Lord, as we go about our activities, as we uh, pray about what you would want for our lives personally and corporately, as the congregational meeting is coming for this church, as they uh, attempt to uh, discuss and discern what is the next phase of ministry for this church. Lord, I pray that you would give them this confidence, Lord, that you are with them in this process. Lord, it's your church, it's your name, it's your fame, it's your glory, and it's ultimately all about you. And thank you, Lord, that you've, in your great kindness, condescended to include us in this great enterprise of advancing your kingdom. So, Lord, we pray, as the Apostle Paul said, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.